How's everyone doing? Yeah, it's good to see you. I was telling Mitch a little earlier, it's like every so often there's a set that Kyle will do and will lead, and I'll say, okay, that's the set I want sung at my, my funeral, right? And it keeps changing, though. I mean, it's like, okay, after today, okay, that's the one I want. So we'll see what he does next week. Well, my name is Mike Lee. I'm one of our pastors, and just grateful to be here with you guys as we continue in our study of the book of Romans. We are halfway through. In fact, we're starting the second half Today, we're gonna to be looking at chapter nine today. Uh, there's 16 chapters, so we are trudging through, we're getting through it. It's gonna be a great time today. Um, grateful for this opportunity. And so as we're looking at Romans, uh, it's interesting. So what we've had is the greatest chapter many believe in all the Bible, Romans chapter eight. And then we come to what people consider to be the most controversial chapters in the Bible, and maybe for sure in the book of Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11, because it deals with issues of Israel, it deals with issues of election, it deals with issues of God's sovereignty, and all of that kind of stuff, which are a lot of things that a lot of people like to debate, argue, fight about, those kinds of things. And so one of the things that I'm gonna be doing is kind of just taking a 30,000-foot view of Romans 9 because it's 33 verses. I can't get into every single aspect of it, but I hope that at the end of the sermon, you'll at least have a, a good understanding of the flow of thought of what Paul is trying to accomplish in chapter 9 and leading into chapter 10 and 11. So I've taught here, this is my third time to teach from this stage here at this location. And uh, so the first time Pastor Corey asked me to teach, it was on adultery. The second time it was on God and politics. And now perhaps the most controversial chapter in all the Bible. So thanks, Pastor Corey. Uh, love that man, all right, yeah. So uh, no, it's, it's really good to be doing this and I'm grateful for the opportunity. When you came in, you should have received some notes, uh, handout. If you didn't grab one of those, if you have the Experience app downloaded, you can go to services and notes and there will be there everything I'm gonna say. It'll be up on the screens as we go through it and uh, we are ready to go. I hope you guys are. Thank y'all for being here. It'd be awfully lonely if it was just me and Kyle, so we're always grateful to see you guys, all right? So let's pray together, and then we will jump in and see where God takes us this morning. Our Father, we are grateful for your word. It's true. It's we that must submit to it, not you submitting to us. And so I pray that this morning, that as we go through chapter nine, that you will speak to our hearts that you will lead us and guide us, Lord. May my words be your words. May you guide me as I teach. Father, I thank you for those who are here today. I pray that we be more than just hearers of your word, but we be doers of it. That when we'd leave this place, we would love you more, that we'd have a little better understanding of who you are and who we are. Father, I would also ask that as you continue to teach us and lead us, that we would bring great glory to your name. So Father, I ask now that you would bless, as Kyle just prayed just a moment ago, all the churches in our area. Bless our campuses as Josh preaches at Cannon County, as Josh preaches at Crossland, and then as uh, Isaac is preaching in Shovelville, watch over them, lead them. I pray for the nonprofits that we get to be a part of in our community, especially for men of valor. Pray that you'll continue to bless their ministry and bless us as we support them through giving and mentors. So Father, we are grateful. We are grateful people. We prayed about that Friday night at the prayer summit. We are thankful because you are a good God. Now we ask you, God, to speak to our hearts. Do it for your glory and our good. We ask in the powerful and wonderful name of our Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we were going through Romans, when Pastor Corey finished up chapter eight last week, he said that he summarized the sermon with the three most important words in the Bible, I am persuaded. And when you come to the end of chapter eight, what you hear Paul say is, I am persuaded that nothing can separate me from the love of God, not height or depths, not demons or angels, not life or death. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. So it's not just a general love of God, it is a love of God that we find in his son, Jesus Christ. And so now as we start in chapter nine, we're gonna be thinking about how big is your God? So when we think about things like election, when we think about things like sovereignty, when we think about man's free will, when we think about all of that, it really does point us back to the question, how big do we allow our God to be? And again, it's not the God that we make up, it's the God as he reveals himself to us through his word. And so we wanna be thinking through that this morning. So 
So we're going to start in chapter one, uh, chapter nine, excuse me, verse one. This is what we do. We go through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so this is what we're going to do this morning. And we're going to start right there at the very beginning of chapter nine. So here we go. Paul writes, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Christ, who is God over all, praise forever. Amen. So Paul, when he writes his letters, oftentimes he has in mind that some of the things he's going to write may have questions, people may have questions about that, or they may even have objections to the things he writes. So as he's writing, he's thinking about this, and one of the questions that Paul has arises out of what he just wrote in chapter 8, because in chapter 8, verse 39, he said, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But at this time, Christianity was about 25 years old, okay? So it had been going for a quarter of a century. And in that 25 years, there had been many Gentiles who had come to faith in Jesus Christ, but not many Jewish people, not many Israelites at all. And so Paul imagines that someone is saying, well, hey, if nothing can separate us from the love of God, how can we believe that if God's very people, the Israelites, the Jews, aren't coming to faith in Jesus? In other words, it seems like something has separated God from Israel, which goes against what Paul just wrote in Acts, uh, excuse me, Romans chapter 8. So why aren't many Israelites coming to faith in Christ? And the reason that bothers Paul is because he was once on the outside looking in. Paul knows that he was a Jewish man who did not belong to Christ. He was a Jewish man that persecuted Christians. He persecuted the people who followed after Christ. He was actually on the road to Damascus to go with uh, instructions from the priests to do what? To throw people, Christians, pagans, Gentiles who had come to faith, to throw them into prison and maybe even kill some of them. So Paul remembers that. But God graciously on that road called Paul out of darkness and into light gave him a new heart, gave him a new passion. And while Paul knows that it's impossible, he says, if it were possible that I could be accursed from God so that my people, the Jewish people, could come to faith in Jesus Christ, I would gladly give up my salvation that they might have salvation. Now for Paul, God's grace is truly amazing and he wants his people, his Jewish people, the people that are his people of his ethnicity, he wants them to receive this truth. Which leads me to ask you a question. When is the last time you wept and were broken over the lostness of your family or of your neighbors or of your coworkers or of the people in our city, the people at your school, When's the last time you wept over our nation because many of our fellow countrymen are far from God? But you say, oh, I, mean, I pray for that and I weep for that. Yes, I want to see people come to faith in Christ. Well, let me ask you this question. When's the last time you walked across the street and shared the love of Jesus with your neighbor? When's the last time you took a coworker to lunch and said, you know, we've talked about all kinds of things. We've talked about the predators. We've talked about the titans but I've never talked to you about the most important thing in my life. It's Jesus Christ. I want to tell you my story. You see, Paul, even though he had anguish for his people and even though he would rather be cut off and see them come to faith, it did not stop him from going to his people and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. He was faithful to do that. So his burden for them wasn't just something he prayed about. It put him into action you know, wherever Paul went, he would always go into the synagogues first to the Jewish people to try to share with them the good news of Jesus. What are we doing to share the good news of Jesus Christ? So Paul says that the people of Israel had all the privileges and that if anyone were to believe in Jesus Christ, it should be the Jews. But what he's also saying, just because you have the privileges, it doesn't guarantee that you will be a Christian. It doesn't mean that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. 
And so where were some of the privileges that the people of Israel had? Well, first of all, they were adopted by God. What many of us forget is that there was a time when Israel did not exist. And what God did is that God, in his timing, went to a man named Abram, who became Father Abraham. Abraham was a man that was called out of pagan worship, called to follow God. And this is what God said to Abraham. I want you to follow me. I'm going to show you a land that I will give to you and your descendants. And through your seed, through your family, all the nations of the world will be blessed. He was adopted by God to be the father of the Jewish nation. I love this picture of adoption because adoption to me is one of the clearest pictures of what Jesus has done for us. Because what do we do in adoption? Adoption looks at a child that's not our family, has not our name, may even be of a different ethnicity. And what does a mom and dad do in adoption? They go to that child and they say to that child, we are going to give you our name. We're gonna give you our inheritance. We're gonna give you our home. We're gonna give you our love and the child will go, but I don't, what did I do? You did nothing, child. We are setting our love on you. And that is exactly what God did with Abraham. And again, sometimes we kind of like Christianize the Old Testament and we look at it and go, oh, those people, they were just so perfect and you know, love Jesus, kumbaya, right? And the reality, do y'all know, I was thinking about this. I shared this last night, and you know, one guy said, are you going to share that on Sunday morning? Yeah. All right. When you think about Abraham, you remember one of the things, Abraham was a liar. Y'all remember that? He would go to places, and because Sarah, his wife, was beautiful, he would say to her, hey, when those men look at you, you just tell them that you are my sister, because if you tell them they're my wife, that you're my wife, they'll kill me so that they can take you into their family. But what would they do? Oh, she's my sister. Great, we're taking her into the family. Now think about this, friends. Abraham was a man that was so afraid of dying that he was willing for other men to have sex with his wife than him die. I know that's harsh, isn't it? But again, we think, oh, Abraham was a good man. And yes, he did grow into faithfulness. He's the father of our faith. We know that, but he didn't always act like that. We have the adoption. The people of Israel were entrusted with the covenants and the law, and there are three big covenants in the Old Testament. The first covenant is with Abraham. I will make you into a people, and through you, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. We know that was through Jesus. The Mosaic Covenant, when God took the people of Israel out of bondage to Egypt and brought them into the promised land, he said to them, you will be my people and you will be a kingdom of priests to shine the light of God to the nations. And again, we ultimately know that pointed to Jesus. And then the covenant with David, the king, the messianic king, the picture of what the perfect king would look like. But what did God say to David? Hey, you can't build the temple but here's why I'm gonna promise you that one of your sons will sit on your throne forever and he will be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we know that was Jesus. And so they had these covenants that were given to them. They also had the law of God. When Moses brought the people out, he went up into the mountain and God gave him the law. And what was the law to do? It was to set this people of Israel apart from all the pagan nations because all the pagan nations worshiped multiple gods. And they had all kinds of ungodly practices in their worship. But what did God say? No, you will be a holy people because I am holy and you will be holy. And these laws will set you apart so people will know what God is like. Not only did the covenants and the law belong to the uh, Israelites, so did God's temple. So Solomon builds the temple in, in Jerusalem. And remember when Solomon builds it and chronicles, he prays and the Shekinah glory of God comes to the temple. And what was it? It was a place where the people of Israel could come and even foreigners could come and worship the one true God. That was given to Israel. And then when Jesus came, he was the temple among the people. And then when Jesus ascended, the Holy Spirit came and now we are his temple. This is all that God is doing through Israel. And then Jesus himself, a Jewish man who descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who descended from the tribe of Judah through David. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. 
These all belong to Israel. And so if anyone was going to believe in Jesus, it should have been the Israelites, the Jewish people. And yet it seems many of them are rejecting. They are rejecting. They are rejecting. Why is this going on? But let me just quickly say to some of you guys, some of you have had the privilege of hearing the gospel for many years. Some of you were born into a Christian home, not a perfect home, but a Christian home. Many of you have come to church for years. Many of you may have come back to your faith. We have had the privilege. I mean, we live in the freest nation in the world where you can have a Bible, you can have a Bible study, you can gather to worship, you can do all of these things, and yet some of you still will not receive Christ. And friends, let me tell you, when you stand before God on the day of judgment, you won't say, well, it's because I was a Baptist or because I attended the Experience Community Church or because my parents were Christians. God has no grandchildren. He only has children. And you cannot get into heaven based on the privileges you've received. You only get into heaven through the privilege of knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That is the only hope any of us have. Next part beginning in chapter nine, verse six. Now, it is not as though the word of God has failed because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Guys, that's a key verse right there, okay? So you need to underline that or mark it. Just remember, that's a key verse that's gonna carry us through these next three chapters, including chapter nine. Verse seven, neither are all of Abraham's children his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebecca conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. For for though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to, and here's the word, election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. So this imaginary man that uh, Paul is talking with and is asking questions, the question is asked, well, has God failed his people? Since not many Israelites are coming to faith in Jesus, has God failed his people? And the answer is no, because there has never been a time in the history of Israel where every Israelite believed and received all of God's promises. I'm reading through the Bible in a year, and I try to do that every year. And so I am already through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and 1 Samuel. I just started 2 Samuel. Here's the one consistent thread throughout those chapters, those books, the people of Israel are scoundrels. It's just, it's just a fact. I mean, can you imagine that you are living in Israel or in Egypt? You see these 10 plagues that happen. You get delivered out of bondage. You get to walk through the Red Sea. You get manna from heaven. You get quail all the time. You get water from the rock. You have a tabernacle where you see the very presence of God. You have the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day, and yet you still want to go chase after other foreign gods? Are you kidding me? And yet that is the people of Israel. Just because they had descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not mean that they were true followers of the true God. Physical descent has never been a guarantee that one was truly a part of the promises of Israel. In fact, you may remember Jesus one time, he's talking to the Jews and the Jews say, we don't know who your father is, but our father is Abraham. (laughs) Jesus says, yeah, and God can make followers of Abraham out of these stones. Don't be boasting in your lineage. There are other things more important than who you are. So this imaginary person says to Paul, okay, if not every Israelite has always been true Israel, you gotta prove it to me. So Paul first uses the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The patriarchs are the founders of national Israel, and they are gonna be the proof case that proves that not every Jew ethnically is a true follower of God. So here we go. Abraham had children. Now, most of us think about Isaac as his child, the child of promise. You may remember when he had Isaac, he was an old man, he was 100 years old, Sarah was 90, all right? So I don't think about that for a moment, that's good good news, right? All right, so um, 
So Abraham, he is taking, and God tells Abraham, take your son and take him up to the mount and sacrifice him to me. Y'all remember that? That's the story of Isaac. But what many of us forget is that Isaac was not the oldest son. Ishmael was. Because God had delayed in allowing Abraham and Sarah to have a baby, Sarah came to Abraham and said, look, take my slave woman, Hagar, have sex with her, and the child she gives you, that will be the promise since God has delayed and I'm too old to have a baby. And so Abraham does that. Ishmael is born. And we're talking about a time that was patriarchal, which meant this, the oldest son got all the benefits. If you were born the oldest son, I'm an oldest son. You got all the love, right? You got all the inheritance. You got the blessing. It was belonging to the oldest. And so Ishmael should have been the one to receive that inheritance. But because God had promised Abraham and Sarah, no, you will have a child. Sarah, you will bear the child. His name would be Isaac. It would be through him that God's covenant would be realized. So even though Ishmael was a child of Abraham, of physical descent, he was not the child of promise. That was Isaac. So now the person that Paul is thinking about would look at Paul and say, well, that proves nothing. Why? Because Ishmael and Isaac were only half-brothers. The promise belonged to Sarah. So Paul says, okay, I'll give you then Isaac. Isaac married one woman. Her name was Rebekah. And Rebekah had twin boys, all right? From the same mom, the same father. So there's no halfness there. They were even twins. And so God said, though, I am going to work through Jacob who again is the younger and not the older one, Esau. And this is what God says here in God's word, that the choice of Jacob over Esau had nothing to do with works, nothing to do. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, here's what you find out about Jacob and Esau. They weren't good guys. Neither one of them were. In fact, Esau sold his birthright as the oldest, he sold it because he was hungry. It meant so little to him that he was willing to sell his birthright for a bowl of porridge. And then the blessing that should have come to him as the oldest was given to Jacob. Why? Because Jacob lied to his father who was blind. I mean, how cruel is that? Go to your old blind father and pretend to be the other son. And we see, again, we forget, oh, Jacob was a good guy. Jacob lived up to his name, deceiver. He was not a good man. And we must remember that there is no one who is worthy to receive the blessings of God. In fact, in Romans chapter three, it says this, that we have all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. And that word all means all. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. So the choice was not based that Jacob was better than Esau. So what was the choice based on? I'm glad you asked. Paul says it was based on election. And there is that word, man, election. And then Paul quotes Malachi where God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So that word there really thinks about this idea that God chooses that he elects or determines which line he's gonna work through. And when we think about that word, hate, God hated Esau, you may forget God blessed Esau in many ways. Esau became a great nation as well. But remember when Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, you've gotta hate your very mom and dad. In other words, you've gotta have such a strong feeling for Christ that everything else becomes secondary. And we have this example. And so when God chooses, he is choosing the line that he will work through. But that's what he's been doing since the beginning of time. I'll give you some examples here, Cain and Seth. Now remember, Seth was the third son of Adam and Eve. Why? Because Cain had killed Abel. And you go, well, of course God chose Seth over Cain. Cain was the first murderer. No way God would have chosen him. Okay, maybe that. I'll, I'll give you that point. Well, what about the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth? Remember God destroyed the world by flood and he started over with the three sons of Noah and God chose to work through Shem. Shem was the forefather of Abraham. So he didn't work through the line, didn't choose the line of Shem 
or excuse me, of Ham or Japheth. He chose the line of Shem. And again, you say, well, maybe Shem was a little better. Okay, then we go to Isaac and Ishmael. Oh, well, Isaac definitely was better than Ishmael. No, he wasn't. He was a liar just like his father, Abraham. He did the exact same thing with Rebekah. And then we've already talked about Jacob and Esau. Oh, well, what about Judah? Because Judah was the line that brought forth David. And then from David, we get to Jesus, right? So Judah, even though he wasn't the oldest, that was Reuben, it should have, Judah must have been better. Have you ever read the story of Judah and Tamar? Go to Genesis and read it. It's an awful, awful story. Judah was not a man worthy to be chosen, but God chose to use Judah as the line. And then what about David over his seven brothers? He was the youngest of eight brothers. Oh, David, the man after God's own heart, who also was a adulterer and a murderer. Are you getting the picture here? God's work in us has nothing to do with who we are. It has everything to do with who he is. That's how big our God is. That is what he's doing. His choice is based on his will to work his purposes out for his glory, which means this, which is where many of you will get frustrated with this whole premise. How big is our God? The Bible teaches that God is the ultimate determiner of all things. And Paul is building the case that God is God and will do what he wills to do for his glory. And yes, does man have free will? We absolutely do. And can we respond to God? Absolutely we can. Can we reject him? You bet you can. Can we receive him? Yes, we can. But God always has the final say. And you say, oh, I don't know if I like that too much. Well, can I just remind you of something? How many of us who are believers now get angry at God that he did whatever it took to save us? Don't we rejoice in that? We call that his overcoming grace. He overcame my rebellion. He overcame your rebellion and called you from darkness into light. Do you get ticked at God for that or do you worship him for that? This is the God that we are talking about and he works in us for his glory. And we want to see that. So we're gonna talk about mercy now in verses 14 through 18. So what should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason so that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then he, God, has mercy on whom he wants, to have mercy, and he, God, hardens whom he wants to harden. So some will say, well, God is unjust. It's like he's choosing favorites and all that kind of stuff. In fact, some of you may say, well, why doesn't God work in my life? It seems like so-and-so gets all the benefits of God, and all I get is the crap and the leftovers. If you only knew my life, there's no way that you could say God is just towards me. But what we forget is that grace and mercy must be unmerited or they cease to be mercy and grace. Because grace is when we get what we don't deserve. What does that mean? We get the love of God. We get his son dying on the cross for us. We get to turn from our sins. We get a home in heaven. We didn't earn that or deserve it. It was a gift from God. Mercy is when you don't get what we deserve. What do we deserve? The wages of sin, Paul says in Romans 6, 23, is death. That's what we deserve. And again, you go, but Mike, I'm not that bad of a person. Friends, the comparison game will eventually fall short because here's what we tend to do. I can find someone who's way worse than me. Doesn't take much in this world, does it? We can find someone who's done a lot of things worse than us, but that's not to whom we're gonna be compared to before God. He'll have his son, Jesus Christ, right there. Now compare yourself to him. And we all fall short of the glory of God, which means then we need his mercy because we deserve justice and wrath. We need his mercy and grace. Some of you will say, but hey, why, I want God to be fair in this world. Well, do you really? I want God to be fair with me. Do you really? I have three kids. They're all adults now. Two girls, a boy in the middle. Every now and then, my wife and I, you know, one of our kids, we'd say, hey, we're gonna take them to this trip. 
And the other two would go, that's not fair. I want to go. How come you don't do things like that for us, forgetting that we've done the same thing for them? And so we would look at them and just look and just say, hey, do you really want us to start being fair with you? And not a single one of them said yes, because they knew they had received grace and mercy from mom and dad in the past, and they didn't want to lose that. We must remember that every single one of us, friends, if you are upright in this room, breathing air, and as best as I can tell, all of you are, you are a recipient of God's grace and mercy in this very moment. That your heart is beating and you're not telling it to beat, that your lungs are receiving air and expelling air, and you're not even thinking about that that you have a brain that's working, that you have a, a, a nervous system that's working, that you have blood pumping through your body. That is the mercy and grace of God in this moment right now. You are all getting something that you don't deserve. God is being merciful to you right now. And this is the mystery of God at work in all of humanity. And is, I mean, listen, some of you know my story. Here's all I know is that I've done things for which I'm ashamed and for which... I deserve eternal separation from God. And you go, man, you're a preacher. But I know me, and here's the thing, I know I'm the worst sinner I know. Because I live with me. I know the things I've done. And unless I'm teaching a bunch of perfect people, and I'm not, every single one of us is in the same boat. We don't deserve his mercy and grace, we deserve his justice and his wrath. In fact, Pastor Corey said this last week. He's reminded of this several times. The Bible was written not to point out the sin in everyone outside of us. It was pointed, written to point out the sin in our hearts so that we would repent and we would believe. I mean, you can't be a Christian if you aren't a sinner. If you aren't a sinner, you don't need a Savior. But sinners need a Savior. And this is what God has done. He has called us in love out of darkness and into light. Now, one of the troubling things in this, there's a lot of troubling things for a lot of people in this chapter, is this issue of Pharaoh. Because what the Bible teaches us is that sometimes God does leave us to our desires. In fact, earlier when we were in Romans chapter one, verse 28, Paul wrote that God sometimes delivers those of us who are God's suppressors over to our corrupt minds. We are the people that we see the power of God displayed in his creation. We hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And instead of running to Christ, we run away from him and we suppress the truth. And Paul writes, there comes a time when in some people's lives, God says, if that's what you want and you want it so badly that you will reject this free offer of salvation, then go chase it. I'm gonna let you go. And that's what Paul says God did with Pharaoh. Again, Pharaoh saw all these plagues that the, uh, that the Israelites saw. And we forget that Pharaoh chased after the Israelites and he saw the Red Sea parted with the pillar of fire in front of it that kept the Egyptians away while the Israelites crossed over on dry land in the middle of the sea. Pharaoh saw that with his very eyes and still rejected God. And what does the Bible say? God said, Pharaoh, you want to continue to follow after your son gods and your gods of the dead? You want to keep doing that? I'm going to let you. That's what you want. I'm going to give it to you. And here's one of my thoughts as I was preparing this. Did Moses deserve God's mercy more than Pharaoh? Remember what Moses was? A murderer. Moses had murdered an Egyptian. That's why he fled Egypt and lived in the wilderness for 40 years because he had killed a man that did not deserve to be killed. So did Moses deserve God's mercy more than Pharaoh? Not at all, no more than Jacob did over Esau. But what does God choose to do? He chooses to display his power to save. And so he left Pharaoh in his rebellion so that God's glory could ultimately be praised when he delivered his people out of bondage. In fact, the worst moment of injustice that has ever occurred in this world was because God allowed Pilate and the Jewish leaders to follow after their desires to crush a rebellion that was started by the Son of God, Jesus Christ. 
and they hung him on a cross, an innocent man, and they crucified him. They mocked him, they beat him, they scorned him, they spit on him. God the Father allowed Pilate and those Jewish leaders to bring Jesus to false justice, which was truly an injustice allowed Christ to die. But why did he do that? Because he knew that even through the evil actions of these men, God would be glorified and we would be helped because it's through the death of his son that we have eternal life. Next part. Y'all having fun yet? All right. I'm tired. All right. Here we go. Verse 19. You will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory on us, the ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As it also says in Hosea, I will call not my people, my people, and she who is unloved, beloved. And it will be in the place where they were told, you are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. He's talking about us there. But Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of Israelites is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved, since the Lord will execute his sentence completely and decisively on the earth. And just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. So what's going on here? Well, again, Paul anticipates your questions. If God is the ultimate determiner who shows mercy on whom he wills, then how can I be the ultimate determiner of my life? I believe in free will, so I should be the one in charge. Well, the spoiler alert is, you're not as much in charge as you think you are. I mean, yes, again, you make real choices in a real world with real consequences. And yet, all the while, God is at work for his glory and he's doing things for our good. Isn't that what we just talked about in Romans 8, 28? That God works together in all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. I've been through some terrible things in my life and yet through them all, God has worked to make me more like his son, Jesus. And while I didn't like what I was going through in the midst of it, now that I look on the other side of it, I give God praise and glory because he's done a miracle in my life that he would not have been able to do otherwise had I not gone through the difficulty. That is the story of many of our lives. God is at work for his glory and our good. So he uses this picture from Jeremiah, the potter and the clay, right? He said, okay, why are you arguing with God? You're the lump of clay God is the potter, and he is the one who created you, which means he has the right over your life. In other words, we do not stand over God saying, you do what I tell you to do. We submit to him asking God to work in our lives. God calls us to submit to him. We don't demand God's submittance to us, which means this, that God does not call us to a bargaining table where we get to dictate the terms by which we are saved. God calls us to the cross where our only response is unconditional surrender. That's it. I mean, there are some of you who would say, man, I would come to Jesus if I didn't have to come to church. I'd come to Jesus if I didn't have to give money. I'd come to ch uh, church and to Jesus if I didn't have to give up my boyfriend or my girlfriend. I'd come to church if I didn't have to give up my job. I'd come, you know, and we give all these things and say, God, if you will listen to my terms, I will receive you and how lucky of God to have me. And yet a rich young ruler once came to Jesus and said, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then finally Jesus said to him, Go and sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Come and follow me. And the Bible tells us that that rich young ruler left sad because he had much wealth. And Jesus said this. If you would come after me, you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross and you have to follow me. 
When you follow Jesus, you open your hands and you hold nothing. You give it all. And you say, I'm yours. That is what the demand is. This is what it means to be the clay. We submit to God, not God to us. And then a very frightening picture is this idea that every single human being will one day display the glory of God. We will either display it as trophies of God's grace and mercy, or we will display it as God's object of God's justice and wrath. Those are the only two kinds of people that are alive in this world. Those who by repentance and faith will display God's glory through his grace and mercy, or because of their rebellion, they will display for eternity God's justice and wrath. And again, we don't like to talk about God's justice and wrath. It's, it's, what do you mean, hell? What do you mean, eternal separation? But for those of us who live in a world like we do of injustice, isn't it good to know that nobody gets away with it? No one ever gets away with it. One day, the Bible says, all the books will be open and everything will be laid bare and everything that you think you got away with will not be gotten away with. God sees everything. There is no one who gets away with murder. There is no one who gets away with slander. There's no one who gets away with gossip. No one does. And either you will pay for your penalties or someone else will pay for it, which is why we have the gospel. Either you'll pay for the penalty of your sins as an object of God's justice and wrath, or you will allow Jesus to pay for it on the cross. That is the only hope we have, which is why we know because of God's justice, and his wrath, we don't take justice and vengeance into our own hands. When we get to Romans chapter 12, Paul is gonna write, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Don't take vengeance into your own hands. He misses nothing. We are imperfect judges. He's the only righteous judge. Trust him. And then Paul talks about us. I pointed it out when he quotes from Hosea. I will call not my people, my people. Friends, we, we as Gentiles, we were on the outside looking in. The only way you could really be blessed with a few exceptions, that's easy for me to say, without a few exceptions, the only way we could be blessed in the Old Testament is to be of national ethnic Israel. So every other nation, every other ethnicity, every other culture was on the outside looking in. But Paul says that God always had in mind that Gentiles, which is us, I know some of you may be Jewish, but the rest of us, we are pagan Gentiles. We used to be outside of God's privileges because we weren't of national Israel. We couldn't trace our lineage through Abraham. But God had a sovereign plan that through a Jewish man, his son, Jesus Christ, salvation would be made possible to all who would repent and believe. Which is why, again, we do not believe in what's called replacement theology, that the church has replaced Israel. What we believe the Bible uh, teaches is that by grace, we who were once on the outside get to join in of, into the promises that God made to Israel. And the promise that God made to Israel is ultimately in Jesus Christ. And so if you are in Jesus, you're true Israel. And you bear the name of the God who has saved you. So what about God's sovereignty and man's free will? Because the big question is, how can they both exist? Because they seem like complete and utter opposites. Because doesn't one negate the other? If God is truly sovereign, then I don't have free will. Well, if I'm truly free, then God must not be sovereign. And yet the Bible teaches both of them. So I'm gonna teach you a word, it's called antinomy. And the word antinomy means an unresolved tension exists between two clear truths. You cannot resolve it, you cannot reconcile it, but we don't have to. All we have to do is believe it and submit to it. So where the Bible says God is in control, what do we say? Praise God. When the Bible says you have a real choice, what do we say? Make a good one. Right? That's what we do. And even though they may seem to be in conflict, they're not. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, a 19th century preacher in London, one of the most famous preachers in all the world, when asked about God's sovereignty and free will, how do you reconcile them, Pastor Spurgeon? And Spurgeon said, I don't have to because I don't have to reconcile friends. We may not see it on this end, but God's word clearly teaches that. Last part. 
What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, look, I am putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over. And the one who believes on him, and that's Jesus, will not be put to shame. So this unseen opponent, this unseen friend that Paul is thinking of finally asks, okay, election, sovereignty, free. what about Israel? Why aren't many of them coming to faith in Jesus? You haven't answered the question, Paul. So Paul says that the problem with Israel is the problem with many of us. We think that salvation is found anywhere else but then through Jesus Christ. And I've got two verses here. I could have picked dozens. But the first one, Jesus said in John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, for some of you, that irks you. And for many people who won't come to faith in Jesus, that bothers them because they know good Muslims. They know good Hindus. They know good Buddhists. They know good agnostics. They know good atheists. And they say, how exclusive of God that he would be so narrow to say there is only one way to the Father and it's through Jesus. That is so unfair to the Hindu and to the Muslim and to the agnostic and to the atheist. How unfair of God. And maybe some of you have thought that. But here's what would make God unfair. In fact, what would make God a devil is if there was only one way to the Father and he said, good luck finding it. Some of you will, some of you won't. Good luck. Now, wouldn't that be evil of God? Hey, friends, there's only one way to heaven. It may be the Christian route. It may be the Hindu, the Buddhist, the Muslim, but I'm not gonna tell you, you'll know when you die. But what has God done? He loves you so much that he's left no chance to it. There is only one name by which you're saved, and it's the name of Jesus. That is the only hope you have. And why do we shrink back from that? If you had the one cure for cancer, would you hide it from anyone or would you give it freely? And yet we're afraid because we're gonna offend someone and what we'll end up doing is offending people and straight into abandonment of God. If you love people the way you say you do, Paul never shrunk away from his love of God proclaimed in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he knew that was the only hope his people had. And the only hope your family, your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, the only hope this world has is the name of Jesus Christ. Peter said in Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven given by which people must be saved. No other name. No other name. The only way people come to faith in God is through Jesus Christ. But Jesus is either a barrier or a bridge. And for the Israelites, the reason many of them are not coming to faith even today is because they do not believe Jesus is their Messiah. Israel would rather trust in their own righteousness through the laws than the righteousness of Jesus received by grace. And what does the law tell us? It doesn't tell us how good we can be. It tells us how miserable we are when we fail. The law was never given to save us. It was always given to point us to the mercy and grace of God. And that has been displayed in Jesus Christ. So really the barrier isn't Jesus. The barrier is our own pride. We will not humble ourselves and come as unconditional surrender to God. Again, we dictate our terms to God. And he says, you keep dictating, but you'll never be mine until you surrender. And that's the problem, again, with many of us. We would rather boast in our works and pridefully deny that Jesus is the only way. So how big is your God? Is your God the creator of all things, including you, to whom you must submit? Too many of us love to say this kind of stuff, you know. Well, my God would never send anyone to hell. Well, my God, da, da, da. My God, my God. Friends, the only true God is the God revealed in this word. You can't make up your own God. The problem, though, is most of us, we want to make ourselves our own gods. 
And whenever you begin to make your own gods, what you're saying is my God is a puppet. I'm my own true God. The problem is most of us worship ourselves instead of submitting to the one true God. How big is your God? Do you believe that God is working all things out, even the hard and difficult things for your good and for his glory? There are only three kinds of people in this room right now. Those who are in a trial, those who are coming out of a trial, or those who are about to go into a trial. May God bless you. But that's it. In this world, you will have trouble. Anybody know what I'm talking about? This coming Monday, tomorrow will be eight weeks. On Monday morning, March the 22nd, I got a phone call while I was meeting with Pastor Corey and our team leads at around 9.30. My wife had the worst headache she had ever had. She was laying on the couch. She could hardly move, broken in the sweat. I drove home, called 911 while I was driving. They came, got her, took her to St. Thomas Rutherford County, did a CT scan, and she had what was called a subarachnoid hemorrhage, bleeding on the brain. And at that point, they couldn't tell whether it was caused by an aneurysm or not. They took her by ambulance then to St. Thomas West, where she was in neuro ICU for eight days. On that Tuesday, on March the 23rd, so she got, that happened on March, Monday, March 22nd. On Tuesday, March 23rd, she had an arteriogram. And by God's grace, there was no aneurysm. It was confirmed the next Monday And now eight weeks later, my wife is completely healed and she was here last night and you would not know anything's wrong with her. In our moments, we'll sit on the couch, we'll hold hands, we'll look at each other and think about these last eight weeks and we'll go, why did this happen? Because there seems no purpose for it, right? (laughs) She had a brain bleed, she was in the hospital, now she's fine. What, what is the purpose? I believe it's for us to stand and give glory to God. And if that's all it was for, then that's the greatest reason of all, isn't it? But let me be honest, we happen to get the answer here. Some of us may not get that answer until we stand before the Lord, but it will still be worth it. It will still be worth it. And then are you willing to let God be God? We just sang it, even when you can't see it, even when you can't feel it. Listen, friends, this world is full of a lot of mysteries. Suffering, pain, sickness, death, heartache, struggle. It's it's a hard world. I don't deny that. And if anyone ever says to you, hey, if you come to Jesus, he'll take care of all your problems, they're lying. Coming to Jesus is not a guarantee that your life will be easy. In fact, coming to Jesus may mean your life starts getting hard. But I believe that my God is at work even when I don't see it. We see him working two or three ways. There's a billion ways that God is at work that we won't know until we stand before him. But I believe it. That's how big my God is, that even when I don't see it, even when I don't feel it, he is doing his work and it's good. So the last question that many, when they come to chapter nine, this is the big question. So am I elect or am I not? Am I in the kingdom of God or am I not? Am I one of Jesus' kids or am I not? How do I know? Can you lose yourself? You know, all this stuff gets in chapter nine. Let me see if I can simplify it for you really quickly. First, the only way any of us are in is by grace through faith in Jesus. That's it. If you're trying to do it by church attendance, if you're trying to do it by good works, if you're trying to do it by your own religious expression and and journey, God bless you. But there's only one way you get in, and it's through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And know this, the reason that you are here this day, if you are an unbeliever in here, and we are so glad you're here, But if you're not a believer in Jesus, the reason that you're even upright and breathing right now is because God is patient with you, not wanting you to perish. He is patient with you. But understand this, the Bible teaches this clearly, that one day his patience will end and you will face judgment. And again, I know that's so unpopular to hear and some of you will rebel against that and say, man, my God is a God of love and he is. 
but the God of the Bible is also a God of wrath and justice. We just read that. And the reason he will pour his wrath and judgment out on you is not because he wanted that. It will be because you rejected his free offer of salvation. His patience will come to an end. So what hope do we have? Well, there is no one within the sound of my voice, whether you're in this room or you're watching online, there is no one within the sound of my voice that is so far gone that he or she cannot be saved. Because friends, even though you may be a million miles away from God, it only takes one step back to him because he's right here. And some of you right now, the enemy is whispering, saying, yeah, he's talking about the good people, but he doesn't know you. He doesn't know what you've done. And friends, I'll be honest, I don't have to know what you've done because I know the Savior who saved me. And some of you know what I've done and that I am a part of the family of God. If I can be in, friends, you can too. Don't listen to the lies of the devil. Listen to the Savior who created you, who died for you, who rose again, and who will come for you again if you will give your life to him. So next week, we're gonna be in chapter 10, and I just wanna close with, I'm gonna steal this from Pastor Corey. He'll do way better, but I'm just gonna read this to you. This is what the Bible says in Romans 10, verse eight. So the same Paul who just wrote about election and sovereignty and all of this writes this in the very next chapter. On the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you in your mouth and in your heart. This is the message of faith we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, which is repentance, because when you declare Jesus is Lord, what that means is you're turning from your way, your sin, your life, and you're turning to Christ and you're saying, you're my boss, I'm gonna live for you. If you will do that and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that God the Son took on human flesh, lived a life that you couldn't live perfectly, died as your substitute, taking the wrath of God for sinners, rose again from the dead to show victory over death and hell and sin and the devil, ascended into heaven where he sits on the throne of God, ruling over all things, and one day is gonna come back on a white horse and take us unto himself. If you believe that, you can be saved. Paul says, one believes in the heart, resulting in righteousness. One confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Without distinction, notice what he says. Since there's no distinction between Jew or Greek, it doesn't matter how you were born. It doesn't matter what your past was. It doesn't matter whether you, your parents weren't married. It doesn't matter whether you're the result of a one-night stand. It doesn't matter anything about your life. All that matters is that the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. And then the last verse of that passage, for whoever calls, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. You know what that word means? Everyone. <laughs> Do you know you're sitting amongst a bunch of everyones in this room right here? And what do we mean by everyone? The adulterer, the porn addict, the drug abuser, the prideful person, the gossip, the liar, the deceiver, the person who's filled with rage and anger, the person who has pursued other gods, the person who has pursued sex, the any, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The question isn't, can he save you? The question is, will you submit and receive him? How big is my God? My God is so big that he won't let any barrier keep you from him if you will repent and believe. Let's pray. So this morning, if you're here and maybe you are far from God, maybe you know that you're not a believer and yet maybe just something here has pricked a question in your mind or a thought and you say, you know, I, who can I talk to? Pastor Carl is here to my right. Pastor Carl's a good man and he can help you. If you're wanting to know more about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus, how to surrender to him. Talk to Pastor Carl. There are people on my right and your left who will pray with you. People who you can come to and you say, man, I'm struggling with this sin. I'm struggling with this thought. Come and ask them to pray. 
And then you hold communion in your hands. Communion reminds us that the only reason we can say this message that Jesus came to save sinners is because of what Jesus did for us. That piece of bread representing the body of Christ which was broken for us. The wine representing the blood of Christ shed for us. It is a reminder that you do not have to pay for the penalty of your sins, that Jesus has paid it for you if you will repent and believe. And so that's the only thing we ask of you is that before you eat and drink, that you repent of your sins and keep trusting in Jesus. Friends, I don't know how you came in here, but can you leave this place believing that you have a big God that loves you so much that he gave a son, Jesus, for you? Don't leave far from God. Leave today with God as your savior. And so, Father, we ask that you'll do this for your glory Move among your people, we ask in the powerful and wonderful name of our Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you guys.